Well, love this place. I mean, seriously, like I love standing in the ruins of celebration. This is great. I mean, really, when you think about it, I love this idea they were talking about this week. And I was like, man, you know, churches don't always celebrate that well, you know. And so it's really cool to see the beginning of this, to come in kind of a, a year after this is when I came in to see the support from you guys, the community, embracing this. And I know there was a lot of ups and downs, and we pushed through. And, and to see what already the effects of it is incredible. So I know you guys have already been commended, but I want to commend you again for all that. It's just a blessing. One of the many reasons I came to Southbrook was the leadership. Was Charlie McMahon's influence in my life, personally. And so it's just an amazing place to be, so I'm glad to be here. Apparently I'm doing things okay because I get a couple more opportunities this summer to stand up here before you, so I didn't blow it all together, you know, when I had my, my chances. So I'm excited to be here to carry on um, in this series called Text Message. Like Charlie said to you, um, this series started about three weeks ago, and we call it Text Messages because it's sort of like, you know, the New Testament has the bigger letters. These are called epistles. They're smaller letters, and they're kind of crammed towards the back of the New Testament. And I think oftentimes people think, oh, they may be less authoritative, they may have less content. And I would argue that the opposite. They have so much good meat there, so much good message, and a lot of times I think we forget about them. And so today we're going to hear the message from John very much like a text message. I would experience, I would say it's kind of like if Charlie was away, like he's about to go away on vacation, and if he had to send an encouraging note or direction back to us here at Southbrook, it would come like in the form of a group message. Hey, keep, keep, keep going the course. Stay strong. We're encouraging you. We're praying for you here from here. It's kind of the same thing what John's doing here to his church. And so I'm excited about this. The second book of John is only 13 verses, all right? But he gets into some heavy stuff, and for us to truly, truly understand it, we have to know the context, and the context sets up in 1 John. And so my goal today is to set up 1 John for you, give you this overview of 1 John, the issues facing the church, what John is addressing in 2 John, takes place in 1 John. And so I want to give you that little overview. I want us to jump into 2 John, 13 verses, and there's a theme that comes to the top of this, and that theme is this word called discernment, all right? Discernment is the core and at the center of our faith. And I'm going to reveal some scriptures to you that will remind you this, that those who follow Christ and make him the Lord of your life, it is assumed you are living the disciplined life of discernment. And for us to set this up, I need to define some things for us, set the parameters here. I don't know where you are coming into this room. I don't know how you define truth, okay? Francis Schaeffer, one of my favorite theologians, defined Christ in this faith as the true truth. To me, Christ, the words of God, and the word made flesh in Jesus is the truest of truths. It guides my life, it's my true north, and I dictate my entire life off of God's word and the man of Jesus. And so for me, that is my truth side of, of my barometer, my spectrum. And that's how I weed out the things that I believe are false or lies or not true of Jesus. Does that make sense? Because that's what's core at, at the core of discernment. You have to have a truth set. And that truth has to be in Christ to discern. And so that's important as to where we're going today. Because the truth is under assault in the church of Ephesus that John is talking about and addressing. Okay? And so in 1 John, let me set this up for you. 1 John, it, it takes place in the church of Ephesus. John is addressing this letter to his church, a church that he's a lead, a part of the leadership. The church of Ephesus got started on, on Paul's second missionary journey. 
He comes to the city, tells the people about the gospel, and the people embrace it, and it starts to grow. But there's something you have to know about Ephesus and primarily the entire world at that time, the cultural background, okay? Because something specifically is coming into the church that is causing division. And it's this term called Gnosticism, okay? Gnosticism got its start before Jesus even was on the scene. Gnosticism, Plato takes some of it and puts it into Platonic thought, and this drives a culture where philosophy is king, wisdom is king, gain knowledge, grow in knowledge, which is what gnosis means. And it means the life that's, you know, the life that's not self-examined is a life not worth living. And so philosophy reigns supreme in this culture. I shared with you guys the last time I was up here kind of a little bit about that. I'm not going to get into the weeds of it, but it's the idea that the material world and the immaterial world, the metaphysical and the physical are separate. The metaphysical is this realm of perfection where down here is imperfection and brokenness and ugliness. And we are just mere projections of the perfect that is going on in a separate realm. And that we have souls within us and that soul craves that realm, but it's imprisoned to the physical body. And so this drives the thought of this day. And so it's important to know that because it's important to know what, sec- what Second John is addressing. That the truth of Christ is under assault, and this is what it's under assault by. And so when the message of Christ comes into Ephesus by Paul and others, Timothy later would lead this church, and John was a part of the leadership as well. People came to faith. They heard this gospel that would have been like rebellious to what they've heard. What do you mean? Wait, you come into town... You talk about a perfect God who created everything, created you and me, who loves us so much, even though we're broken and fallen, would come down to earth, put flesh on, walk and live among us, serve us, go to the cross out of his love, die for us, three days later defeat the grave for us so we may have an eternal relationship, then ultimately go away so his spirit may live within us? You're crazy. That's that's ridiculous. Because for so long... The Gnostics have told us that nothing like that could exist. These things don't come into contact with one another. And so people were drawn to this message. And so the church of Ephesus starts to blow up. It's growing. And people are coming to faith. But here's what happens, and I say this a lot, that we as humans, a species, are often discontented. A lot of times we cannot just sit with this message of of Jesus And here's what the message is at its core. It's a formula that I didn't create. It's been around. And you'll see it on the screens. It's simply this. The true truth is this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's what the gospel message is. That it's Jesus and nothing else added to it. Now that sounds simplistic. That sounds like, oh, like there's people out there say, just give me Jesus. Well, do you understand what that means? It's give me his words, give me his life, give me the way he served, the way he loved, the compassion, the truth that he spoke. Give me his life and let it orient the way I go from here on out. That's what that means. That means add nothing to that. But here's what we tend to do, and this is what was happening in the church of Ephesus. It's a term called syncretism. That after some time, the message of Jesus was okay, but living among their culture... And the things that were impressed upon them through most of their life, maybe peer pressure, maybe outside pressure, they started to add to that message. And so when you add to that message, here's what you get. Jesus plus something equals nothing. You take away from it. 
because it's just Jesus. And so what they did is, we like this idea of Gnosticism, because here's another reason we like the, uh, the phil- phil- philosophical view of Gnosticism, is because my soul is imprisoned to a broken body, I am free to live a hedonistic lifestyle. Because it's just my body, it's broken, it's sinful, well, you, who cares? You're not, you know, it's not going to affect the soul, it's just my flesh, it's just my body. So how about we do this? How about we take this idea of Jesus and we add to it with some of our philosophical views and the way culture thinks? So what comes about is this idea of Christian Gnosticism, where they didn't believe Jesus was human. He was just divine the whole time. But here's the thing. They don't believe in all the miracles. They don't believe in this idea of living a sin-free life, doing the best we can to live like Jesus. It's okay. Just press the flesh. It's just our flesh. It's just our body. It's broken. Who cares? And so how about we mix Jesus with what we really like to do? How about we start to do that? And that's what's starting to take place in this church. And see, I love, I get excited. Like I, I, I tell my son this all the time. Dad's not upset. I'm just passionate. I just love getting excited talking about baseball with you and what you're doing. This gets me excited because so often I think when we jump into scripture or we think about the Bible, we think it's so antiquated. We think the issues they face in the first century church are so archaic. It doesn't apply today. But man, at the heart of it all is exactly the same as today, that our hearts gravitate to other things. And it's no different then than today. I would argue it's even worse today. That the temptation to syncretize our faith, to say, hey, Jesus plus something is everything in our minds. So let's, let's say Jesus plus, plus success is everything. Jesus plus my political affiliation equals everything. Jesus plus my family equals everything. Jesus plus my kids equal everything. Jesus plus my monetary gifts, my possessions, money, power equals everything. And see what happens is when you add two, you completely take away from the man of Jesus and, and the gift of the gospel. Because when you add to whatever it is you add to, that becomes the source of your, your focus. That becomes the source of your heart. That becomes the thing you pursue after, and Jesus takes a back seat to that. And so that's what's happening in this church in Ephesus. And so it's important for us to know this, because with that, I want us to jump into Second John, because here's what you're going to hear a few times. You're going to hear Second John. You're going to hear John himself use the term truth, 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 truth. And he's talking about this Jesus plus nothing equals everything, truth. Now let's follow along. You can follow along the screens. If you have version app, open that up. You have your Bible there. We're going to sit here because it's 13 verses. All right, so we're going to go through this, and again, you've got this background, you understand what's, what the church is facing, so John just, I love John because he's passionate, he's pastoral, he loves his people, and he wants to protect them, he's almost like a bulldog, protect this truth, be diligent, and here, let's follow along on the screens, it says this, the elder to the elect lady and her children, that simply means the elder who is John, John to the elect lady is the church, the church and her followers is what that means, whom I love, there it is, in truth, and not only I, but also who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Listen to what he says here. I rejoice greatly to find what? Some of your followers walking in truth. He says some. This church was vibrant and growing, and now it's some of you are truly sticking to the real truth of who Jesus is. Just as we were commanded by the Father, now I ask you, dear lady, dear church, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning that we love one another. 
And this is love, that we walk according to his commands. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. There it is, Gnosticism. Just a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So John takes this. He says, listen, there are people among you, and he's, listen, he's not talking about people in society and culture that maybe not have any connection to the church. There's the idea that many in the church have gravitated away from the truth and started replacing it with a counterfeit message, and then they start spreading it among their people. So John's saying, listen, many deceivers are among you, and they're spreading this counterfeit message. And look at the term he uses to define them. This is what I mean. He doesn't mince words. He says they are antichrists. This isn't some political head in 2300 reading the newspaper. Who's going to be this one antichrist that's going to rise up from China and be this head of the antichrist movement? It's not that. The idea of an antichrist is anyone who would lead you away from Jesus. Anyone who would put a wedge between you and Christ. If they drive a wedge between you or lead you the other way, what are you doing? You're moving away against anti. It's anyone. Throughout all of history, there have been antichrists. And to be honest with you, before Jesus was real in my life, I was a part of that movement too. And so it's a thing that is constant. And John says, listen, they are preaching a false gospel. You have to be diligent. And listen to what he says to him: Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in the wicked works. If this person knocks on your door and you know the message that they're about, and you've got that door cracked, don't throw that door wide open and let that falsity in. You push that out. You see how I mean about John? I love this about him. Protect the truth. Fight for that truth. Don't let that counterfeit message come in. Because when you do that, you're helping to spread that message among the people. Resist it. Push it away. And then he closes up and says, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk to you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. He's closing out by saying, the children of your elect sister, others in the church, other churches that we have around the area and the region, understand what you're dealing with. And they send encouragement and prayers, essentially. And so you have this, as Francis Schaeffer coined, the true truth of the gospel is under attack. People are adding to it and taking away. And so the theme that's at the center of 2 John is this word called discernment. And I don't know everybody if everybody in here knows that word. I was talking with some just to kind of gauge. And some are like, I kind of remember that word. I don't really know what that is. And here's the thing. For those who follow Christ and it's the Lord of their life, when you read Scripture, discernment is an expectation. It's assumed. The sermon is defined like this. You'll see it on the screens. It's a great book. Tim Challies has a book called The Spiritual Discipline of Discernment. It's a great book. If you're interested in reading about it, I loved it. I enjoyed it. Listen to this quote. I love this quote. Discernment depends on an understanding that objective truth and error both exist or are in constant opposition to one another. Thus, discernment is the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. 
It's a daily habit. It's a discipline. It's a ritualistic living to live in this way of, of what... It's the idea of putting on Christ's eyes, ears, mind, thoughts, actions, heart, love, everything in any given moment. It appears in the Hebrew in the Old Testament over 250 times, and that term is buy-in. That means to distinguish between, understand, separate, and determine. If you said, give me a super simple definition, I would say discernment is separate and determine in light of Christ. In the New Testament, it appears in diachrono and anachrono over 70 times. Scrutinize, investigate, examine, prove. Again, separate and determine. It's quintessential to the faith. It's like this. I, I say, I don't, I, again, I don't know where your spiritual journey is taking you. I don't know for you if the source of the message of Christ is two hours in a week or one hour in a week. I would say it's nearly impossible to, to discern all of the things of Christ if that's all you're bringing in. It's like living in a world, right, with mixed messages. It's like standing on a 50-yard line of a packed stadium and everyone is yelling mixed messages to you at the top of their lungs constantly. And you don't know which way to go and what is what. And how do I decipher that? Is that true? Is that false? Is that a lie? I don't know because I don't have a bearing to go with. That's what discernment is. Your bearing, your true north, Jesus. And so I'm big on not being opinionated with this, right? I don't want this to be, oh, this is Eric's opinion. I, I am big on, on like kind of vomiting scripture to you, and I hope you're okay with this. Because I want you to leave and say, oh, this isn't just an Eric thing. This isn't his thing. This is God's word. And so we find discernment multiple times in the Old Testament, but one I love is 1 Kings 3, where King Solomon has been elected to lead God's people. Anybody in here lead people? We all do. We all have influence. Listen to what Solomon says about that influence. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this great people? God, please give me understanding, which is another term for discernment. Give me a mind to discern, because a lot of times discernment is a separation of what's good and evil. Heck, sometimes it's a separation of what's good and great. He says, Lord, fill me with discernment. I need it if I'm going to lead people. And if I'm going to lead like you would lead. Paul writes to his church in Philippi. Listen to his prayer here. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. With knowledge and what? All discernment. Why? So that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You can't approve what's excellent in light of Christ without discernment, he says. I pray that it fills you up. Hebrews takes a more harsh tone. In Hebrews, discernment is kind of linked to spiritual maturity. Listen to the writer of Hebrews as he talks about this. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, they're talking to the the Jewish people. By this time you should be teachers and helping people with this, he says, they say. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God, just the teachings of God. It says, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word, word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. How are you mature? What does that show up as? For those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. If you struggle with discernment, it's a huge growth. It's huge. It's a, it's a growth mindset with discernment. It takes time. It takes priorities. 
to prioritize that in your life every day. The writer of Hebrews says, listen, the goal is to grow up in our faith. And a big sign of that is is the person who lives a discerning life. I'll do a couple more. Paul writes to his church in Rome, a popular verse that many know, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do you know that? Discerning. How do you know what God's will is? It's with discernment. And the last one before we transition on here is one of my favorites. If you, have, you, you just want to read a chapter, Psalms 119 is a great chapter that talks on this. I love it so much because it gives you kind of the source, one of the key sources for discernment. And listen to the psalmist. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. We jump down to verse 97, and listen to these. You're going to hear this theme over and over about God's words, God's teachings. Oh, how I love your law, another word for your teachings. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged because I've observed your precepts. Again, your teachings, your words. I've restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I love this phrase, from your precepts. Again, your words, I get understanding. That's the buy-in word for discernment. Therefore, I hate every false way. And the popular verse there, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You want to grow in discernment. Do you want to light your path as how to move through this life in light of Christ? It is with the word of God and the word made flesh in Jesus and his life. That's how we go through this life. I wholeheartedly believe that the word of God and the actions of Jesus, the life he lived, the ministry he had, applies to everything today and every decision I can make. And that is how I use it to discern in my life. John MacArthur has a great quote on discernment. He says this, A life of discernment is a word-focused and word-directed life which develops a word-saturated mind. Discernment is a word-saturated mind. It is filling up, it is saturating your mind on solid food, the word of God, Jesus himself. It's, It's so important. I mean, scripture, it's all over scripture. These are just some verses. There are so many about the importance of discernment. And Tim Challey's book, he has this great illustration. I love it, so I'm going to steal it, all right? He says, he's Canadian. And so he said, in Canada, we have like this weird undercurrent of fear that at some point we're going to come across counterfeit money and not know it. He said, it's kind of weird, but it's a big deal because it's such a big deal, the treasury wanted to address it. And so they wanted to educate their people on money and what's counterfeit and what's not. And they have a slogan. It's so, this is so killer to our spiritual faith. The slogan is, study what's true, not what is wrong. And so they rolled out this whole campaign to better understand the Canadian currency. And a lot of it's similar to our currency. So I've got a $20 bill that I had to bum off somebody. Um, and so... I've got this here. And so what they do, they they use this thing called touch, tilt, look through, look at. When you get this money, it says right away, touch it, feel it. Because it's made with a a specific type of paper, cotton-based paper. And if you have counterfeit money, there's generally a different feel to it. A lot of people say it's waxy. Or it may just be hard to explain, but you know something's off with it. So they say touch it, 
to know what is true. They say the next thing is tilt it, because when you tilt it, this is where our currencies are different. When you tilt the Canadian dollar, there's like this strip, this holograph that, that reflects, and it's like rainbow colored, and within it has the, the denomination of that bill. And so that's really hard to reproduce by a counterfeiter. So it says, tilt it to see if it's revealing what it should be revealing. The next thing is they said to look through, hold it up to light. And this is where ours is, is, is a little different, right? When you hold it up to light, there's so many different things that, that appear through that bill. And that's where our strip is. You hold it up, you see a strip there, and it says $20 in there, $20 denomination. Really hard to reproduce the things that come through when you look through. So touch, tilt, look through to decide what is true. And the last one is simply look at. Look at it closely because the intricacies are really hard to reproduce. Really hard. Like just the portrait of Andrew Jackson. It's just the intricacy of that. It's hard to reproduce. And he said their thing is, is if you study what is true, you can, you can resist all the counterfeits that come along. Because it's the same with our spiritual life and spiritual warfare. Our enemy is ever-evolving and ever-changing. In the first century church, it was Gnosticism. Today, fill in the blanks. And just like the treasury is teaching the Canadians, listen, when you study and you wrap your mind about, around what is true, you can resist what is false no matter what comes at you. And the same is true with discernment. You have to engulf yourself, saturate yourself with the word of God, with the person of Jesus, in order to resist the counterfeit message that the enemy loves to use on a daily basis. Because what you don't know can hurt you. We know this. There was a story of this bank robber in Texas. His name was Jorge Rodriguez, and he was good at what he did. Really good. Robbing banks all over the place. Uh, the Texas Rangers were getting so uh, upset. I said Texas Rangers. Is that, that's the baseball team. What, Walker, Texas. That's right. I'm right. Never mind. Sorry. I just had a thing here. I love when I can talk to myself and work things out. And I, did, you, did you hear that I used Walker, Texas Ranger to figure it out? Oh, my gosh. Can't wait for my friends to see this video. It's amazing. Walker, Texas Ranger. No, I'm right. Okay. Yeah, the Texas Rangers. Okay. So they're looking for Jorge Rodriguez, his clan, and his hideout. And it seemed like every time they thought they had him, he was one step ahead of them. Until one fateful day, a Texas Ranger walks into a bar, and he's sitting there at the bar. Back to him, this, the Ranger's like, oh, my gosh, it's Jorge Rodriguez. Draws his gun, walks up, puts the gun in his back, and he starts to go through. Jorge Rodriguez, Texas Ranger, I got you. Tell me where your hideout is, where the money is, where's your clan and everything, and I'll let you go. If not, I'm going to shoot you dead right here. So he sits there for a minute, no response, and then he remembers. Oh, Jorge doesn't speak English. <laughs> so an opportuni opportunistic young man steps in. Hey, you need help? I'm, bi I'm bilingual. I speak Spanish and English. Yeah, that'd be helpful. Yeah, tell him what I just said. If he just gives up the money, his clan, and everything, I'll let him go. If not, I am going to shoot him. So he speaks Spanish to Jorge. And you see Jorge, like, nodding, and, and he responds frantically. Jorge tells him, hey, I, I just want to get out of here with my life. The address is 2050 Houston Avenue. Everyone's right there. The money's there. Just let me go with my life. The translator turns to the ranger. Ranger says, what he said? He goes, 
Jorge's a brave man. He's ready to die. <laughs> right? What you don't know can hurt you, right? It's important to know what's true. And all, throughout all the gospel is this message of discernment, being discerning people. Because the enemy loves to lure. He loves to whisper secrets. He does it in the church. And it's been, out, it's been a tale as old as time. First century church to now. The culture we live in, society we live in, the people we have around us constantly may be speaking a different message than what we know to be the true truth. And if we don't have that true truth governing our every waking moments, we might as well be using a, a magic eight ball to decide what's, what's next. Where could you use discernment more? Man, this is, this is a message for everyone. I mean, I'll blow this too. Discernment is the difference between how you treat someone who is different than you, who might not agree with you. I discern how Jesus would treat them. How about the way I interact on social media with people that don't agree with me? Discernment says, Christ, if you were sitting in this seat with this phone right now, and I am, I am triggered right now, my impulses say, respond right now. How would you do it? Discernment says this. Here's the thing. Discernment says, pause. Pause. Separate and determine in light of Christ. How should I do this? How should I lead my family? What job is best for me? What type of husband should I be? How do I respond in this situation? This person's offended me. I'm in the midst of adversity. Pause. Separate and determine. If you are not flooded with the message of Christ and the words of Christ, what are you using to govern your every waking moment? You're cracking that door to a counterfeit message and the counterfeiter is going to kick it wide open. And he cannot wait to rule your life. Paul says, I am praying for this. John says, please, please don't open that door. Be a church of discernment. My prayer is that when we leave here today, maybe for you the next steps, how do we grow in discernment? I mean, the biggest thing, number one, is just to prioritize it. To say, I need to govern my days, my life, as if Christ is, is steering the ship. And so today I'm going to start a pattern of just sitting under his precepts, like the psalmist said, his messages, his words. How did Christ interact with people? culture, society? How did he love the least of these? How did he lead so many different ways where discernment is key? We talk a lot about the Babylon Bee around here because it's absolutely hysterical. It's one of my favorite satirical outlets. And I about, I about, I'm not going to lie, I about peed a little bit when I saw this one. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. <clears throat> I'm going through Twitter and they're all in there and this is the headline. This is so Discover God's will for your life with this one weird trick. That's the headline. Okay? You click it, you go in. You want to discover God's will for your life? Well, we're glad you fell for this clickbait headline because we've got this one weird trick that can do it for you. It's a trick the devil doesn't want you to know about. Ready? Here goes. Read your Bible. <laughs> that's, that's it. There are a bunch of verses that sp specifically tell you what's God's will for your life. 
You don't have to stare into a magic eight ball or beat yourself with a stick or study your daily Enneagram thoughts. Nope, it's all right there in God's written word. Wow, the devil's going to be ticked off now. Disclaimer, unfortunately, this won't necessarily make you lose weight, discover a loophole on your mortgage, or suddenly start making $150 an hour. I just think, like, to wrap this up, I think for a lot, for a lot of us, me included, we make things too difficult. I very much love the Enneagram. I ain't going to lie. I enjoyed it. It's been helpful in discovering not only myself but others and how I work with them and how I associate with them. Um, but there are a lot of times where it's like, oh, I want to see the daily thought on this. How should I do this? How should I do this? I'm like, the last, ten, the last thing we tend to go to is God's word. How about I get more advice from these people or this person or this pie, or this book or this content or whatever? Ah, the last thing I'm thinking about is God's word. I think as we leave here today, I just want, man, me included, Southbrook, if we could be a movement of discerning church, if John is writing to us right now, which he is, 2019, sitting right here in South Dayton. He's saying, church, be a church of the truth. Don't forget it. I want to remind you of the true truth. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Do not try to, to tempt to add to that. When you add to it, you have nothing. It's simply him. Let it govern your life. And when the counterfeiter comes knocking, do not open that door up. Study what is true to seek out what is false. Let's pray. Dear God, I I thank you um, for the blessing of this this place, of this church. We can come and celebrate the great things this community is doing in your name. I pray, my goodness, the same prayer as Paul. I want to reinforce the words of John. Lord, I pray that this place, Southbrook Christian Church, will be a discerning church. They will seek your guidance, that you will be their true north to help them navigate their ever-waking moments. Because we know when we do that, the kingdom of heaven makes an impact somewhere. We know it does. Someone takes notice and asks questions.